Welcome to the Five Minute Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, we're talking Midnight Run, and we got a treat. Editor Billy Weber, the esteemed editor, is here joining us to talk. Um, Ted's joining us on this episode, too. If you haven't seen Midnight Run, I guess I need to do a plot synopsis, but why haven't you seen Midnight Run? Uh, this 1988 movie is about Robert De Niro being a bounty hunter who's having to get Charles Grodin across country. And if you haven't seen Midnight Run, stop listening to this episode and watch it right away. This episode also uh, doubles or triples as a dive into Billy's career and also into director Martin Brest's career, who him and Billy have done three movies together and still to this day have a, have a relationship with each other. But first up, what I watched this week, um, St. Maud, Rose Glass's movie that... This time last year was A24's big push into, let's, let's not even say this time last year, let's say right before the pandemic, this was going to be their summer, maybe their Midsommar, Midsommar slot, the movie, the crossover movie. Um, and I finally got around to it. It's just put up on Amazon Prime earlier this month. And it's weird how much promise people, I felt like people were excited about that trailer. I was excited about that trailer. And then no one talked about it, but I didn't get bad reviews. I watched it. It's solid. It definitely made me feel a little odd just because one of its tricks is a very common trick. This is one I like to do is uh, whenever you want to subjectivize a character's experience, you take in a scene an everyday sound and you suddenly escalate it. Um, the movie is solid and worth it just because Jennifer Eel is like, what, the 46th newest art incarnation of supposedly our next Meryl Streep, and she's amazing in it. But it, it, I feel like there's a subgenre of horror movies over the last 10 years, usually with very strong sound design, that all their godmother is repulsion. And usually an isolated psychological horror movie that usually is about mental illness and it it has a typical horror genre trapping on top of it that uh, really is just trying to get out a specific mental ailment which is good it's it's interesting it's definitely more more in enlightening take on horror as opposed to you know a slasher or anything like that and it still has the same amount of scares but if we're talking about repulsion this week, the coolest thing I saw this week is Bo Burnham's newest special that just went up on Netflix, Inside. Now, if you haven't heard anything about this or seen it yet, I won't, I'm not going to say that it's an a easily watchable, digestible 90 minutes just because Bo Burnham pulls a Ross McEwley and stars, writes, directs, lights, and edits himself only to one-up Ross McEwley. He does it all in one room, and it's his uh, comedy special for the pandemic, which, I mean, Bo Burnham has always been someone who, who you know, his specials in, involve a lot of musical comedy, and this one, in the spirit of repulsion, being only in one room gets very real and uh, very dark, especially after this last year. It's episodic. I think you can watch it in spurts. I watched it in two spurts, two or three spurts. But uh, just on a lighting level alone and creativity thing, this man stuck in a room trying to get through his issues, it's impressive. And 
I, I remember after 9-11 wondering how people were going to trying to make, because I was so young when it happened, or I was, you know, in my 20s and just getting into college, wondering how people were going to explain what it was. And I didn't realize that you needed time and distance. So I'm not going to say this is representative of the shit show 2020 year that was, but it feels like it's a good, it's the best first draft I've seen so far. So there is that. But I also wanted to note that I uh, went back to the theater just last night and saw nobody, and it was fine. But ten mi five minutes, ten minutes into the movie, some uh, older teenagers came in, and started started yapping, and I said said I tried to quiet them. They told me to shut up, and it was five minutes after I just gotten through talking to past guests and then current manager of Showplace in Mazis, Aaron Smith. And so I went right out and was like, I said something to him and he got them quiet. And it reminded me of what it really honestly is going to be like going back to the movies. And if you haven't seen this meme yet, there's a review up on Letterboxd of the movie Cruella by uh, their name is the uh, Letterboxd user's name is Siegel, trademark. And this review is... I'll just read it. Five ladies walked into the showing late and spent a few minutes continually changing their seats and whispering loudly to each other. They finally got settled in, and then this kid started making noise. One of the women got up, walked over to the kid, and told him to, please shut the fuck up. The kid's mom yelled at her and called her a white trash bitch, and she yelled back and called her fat, and a major shouting match broke out. They walked out and continued fighting right outside, and at this point, point half the audience had gotten up to watch them instead of the movie i was sitting all the way in the back so i was able to do both and then i heard the sound of a taser the mom tased the other lady twice the mom stormed back into the theater grabbed her child she was still holding the taser and rushed out so fast about a minute later the movie paused and soon after the cops showed up they listened to all our accounts and then the theater manager offered us refunds or to just go into the next showing. The movie was all right, but the experience was unforgettable. Living in NYC is so much fun. And I don't know if you uh, might have seen this sketch from SNL's season finale. I think it was in their season finale, one of their last two episodes. But they parody the Vin Diesel's uh, PSA of the movies. So the, the friend who sent that to me, I responded back with a meme of Vin Diesel saying, the movies. And with that, the movies are back. So anyway, onward with this episode. Were you remote editing in, before, in September? I was. This last September, I was remote editing, uh, but it was a different setup. Uh, so that I could talk right at the computer I'm uh, uh, looking at right now. But now this new system, there's a laptop over here that's got the camera in it. And it's all, I don't know why they do this. I don't like this system. Actually, <laughs> but uh, Does it, it do the thing where it shares screens, where it, sh it will share your like Avid screen with uh, in real time? Uh, yeah, but that I'm staring at the Avid screen. Okay. But the computer the, where the camera is, is this laptop that I cannot change where that is. 
you you should you should have them come in and request to just put it in the back of your head yeah. so the director's just watching the back of your head yeah <laughs> the only other person i know who's uh cut remotely like this where like they had a setup in a shared screen was uh mark yishikawa he was doing some stuff uh-huh. the, i i only talked to him at the beginning of the pandemic i haven't talked to him since but he told me he had like big setup in his living room it's cut. pretty common now this is what's i think this is the future actually yeah uh, not a hundred percent, but I bet there's going to be a lot of people from now on cutting at home because it's so doable. And there's this really interesting, good software called Evercast where I could be cutting with the director. The director's home. I'm here and we're cutting together and they're watching everything I'm doing. Wow. And they say, oh, can we take a little bit off of that shot? OK, just a second. OK, what do you think of that? Oh, yeah, I like that. They can do all of that now. For a very long time, I was um, uh, cut. I, the last two movies I worked on, I cut remotely, and we just do the really basic um, two hard drives sh- on Avid shared MXF files, and then we just uh, email projects back and forth. Uh-huh. But but it was good for me just because I was always I'm always one of those leave me alone for uh, 15 minutes yeah. and let me show you something. I was I always had the problems with the person behind me who's like move a few frames this way. Right. Right. Which I think a lot of editors are that way. Yeah, yeah, but but this is this system that it's called. If you want to look it up, it's called Evercast. Okay. And it really works quite well. It's surprising how well it works. Okay. And then um, uh, and then we were communicating with each other, with the director, with uh, you know, you could hook it up to a what's producer. That, what's that going to mean for? I mean. Editors need to be localized in LA. I mean, can you go anywhere now? I'm asking this for a friend, not myself. But I think you friend. can go anywhere. Well, yeah, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I think so. Okay. I think so. So uh, I kind of Billy, I, we're, we're directly talking about Midnight Run. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I kind of also I'm going to jump back and forth because I want to do a career retrospective or just a uh, just because. Like, you can uh, go wherever you want. Don't worry. It's you, Billy. Uh, <laughs> w- let's go further back. Uh, I don't think I ever asked, where are you from? I am born and raised in Los Angeles. Okay. So uh, what was movie going like when uh, you were a kid? Uh, I went almost every Saturday with my brother, who was four and a half years older than me. And we would go to the movies together every weekend. And uh, we would go with my parents also uh, at my brother and I would always go in the daytime on Saturdays, but my parents loved the movies too. So we would go at night on weekend nights with them. Okay. And you know, those were in the days when you could, when you could take a kid to see any movie, it was just, you know, up to you, whether or not you thought that it was okay. There was no such thing as uh, uh, bad language movies. So you didn't have to worry when you were a parent. So we would go see everything. Oh, I should explain one thing. First movie my parents ever took me to, ever. Uh, I never forgot this. Uh, it was a Western, and a horse, a cowboy horse, came running towards the camera, and I went screaming out of the theater. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't go back in. So I was probably three years old, let's say. That, that parallels like the uh, the people running out of the theater of the Lumiere Brothers uh, train coming in. Oh, the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And uh, so my parents were really upset, not angry, but upset because they love movies and my brother loved movies. And I went running out of the theater. I never forgot. I know what theater it was. It became my my local neighborhood theater that I loved that I 
you know, basically lived at. But I went running out of the theater into the lobby. My mom came out after me and she sat down with me and I refused to go back in. I wouldn't go back into the theater. That was it. You, you know, uh, you guys said Lumiere Brothers to give the generational divide here. I remember Ghostbusters. I was probably <laughs> like three then. And I mean, that was how some kind of, I, I, my brother and my mom have challenged this memory, but I remember screaming and wanting to get out of the, get out of the theaters. Where were the first movies that you started? What are the first titles that you remember paying attention to? Oh, golly. Do you remember paying attention to filmmakers at that no, age? No, or no, was that no, way later? No, no, not a, have not a clue who filmmakers were or what they were. Nothing. Uh, when I went screaming out of the theater, it was probably 1947. Okay. And then a while later, I don't even know how much longer, they took me back to the movies again. And this time they thought, well, this will be okay. And I refused to go into the auditorium part of the theater. And the movie was... <laughs> I remember what the movie was. It was an animated version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Okay. And I would not go in the theater. It's a pretty frightening movie. Though. Was, I was sitting in the lobby and my mom came and decided the best way to deal with this was to sit out in the lobby with me. And after a while, she talked me to go back into the auditorium. I remember saying, okay, but if I don't like it, I'm going out. She said, yeah, I understand. It's okay. That was it. Never went out again. Um, Do you know this Cody Lux movie? Uh, no. Yeah, I mean, look it up. I'm sure. It, there's a, it could be a Warner Brothers. It could be a Flasher. Uh, it, was, it, was, it could have been Disney. It could have been Warner's. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. From that point on, I was hooked. I, did, did you only Saturday morning... Uh, uh, occasions with your brother was it those serials involved yeah yeah sometimes yeah flash gordon uh did you ever see the movie uh avalon yes uh, Barry, Barry Barry Levinson? Levinson? remember their mother when they're kids takes them to the movies and leaves them there and then she comes back and picks them up when she's done doing whatever she's doing that was my life so my brother and i my mom would take us to the movies drop us off and leave us there and then go shopping or visit a friend or we don't even know what she did. She'd leave and then she'd come back a couple of hours later and come into the theater. She wouldn't have to pay or anything like that. She'd just tell the you know manager, I'm picking up my kids. She'd go into the theater and walk up and down the aisles looking for us, found us. <laughs> and then we get up and go and leave. And it was always a double bill, always. It was unheard of to just have one movie playing in a theater. And it didn't matter if it was opening, first time it opened. It was always two movies in the theater, always. So from what ages did this babysitting arrangement last? Until they felt it was safe for my brother and I to just go alone, which meant that okay. we'd have to take a bus and to the theater, wherever. And we went all over L.A., everywhere. Okay. So I knew so many theaters in L.A., all over the city. Because uh, he'd look in the paper, where's this playing? And He'd always pick what we were going to go see. What are titles sticking out now at this at this age? Or uh, yeah, well, yeah, we. I mean, from westerns to mysteries to, you know, we saw Raymond Chandler with stuff, uh, scary movies. was a really low budget movie I never forgot literally never forgot 
that was in probably 1950, 1951, called The Little Fugitives. Okay. About a kid, two brothers, extremely low budget. Some of it didn't even, wasn't even sync sound. Okay. It was made by a husband and wife. And it was a story of two kids with a single mom and her, her sister gets sick and they're living in New York in Coney Island. And she tells the older brother, I have to go take care of aunt. I can't remember the aunt's aunt Susie, let's say for the weekend. So you have to take care of Richie here. The older son is probably 12. So Richie's probably six. So she leaves the two boys at home. The older brother can't stand the idea of having to stay home with his little brother all the time to take care of him. He comes up with an idea. Richie, come on, let's go downstairs. Uh, Joey's coming over. We'll play guns with each other. And uh, they get downstairs and his the older brother's friend says, Richie, why don't you do a, a, shoot, a, a shootout? He said, I'll count to three and then I'll say draw. And whoever draws first, they win the shootout. So Richie, Richie draws his cap gun, fires at Joey, falls down on the ground. And the older brother says, Richie, what did you do? You shot him. Look, he's bleeding all over. And he shows his hands full of blood. You're going to get in trouble. You got to run. Get out of here. And Richie runs off, thinks he killed Joey. And then Joey sits up, laughs with the older brother. And it worked great. Figuring that his brother Richie eventually will come back. Richie runs off, gets on the Coney Island subway and takes it to the beach, to Coney Island. Okay. Scared shitless because of what he just did. But then he realizes he's on Coney Island and he sees there's a, a guy who's carrying a bag and he drops a bag on a counter and it's full of empty soda bottles. Counts them all up and he gives the guy money because they're all deposit bottles. Richie realizes he can make a living at this. I can make money and they can get on the rides. And one of the rides he goes on is a pony ride. And the guy who's running the pony ride he's staring at the kid and he doesn't understand why there's no parents there with the kid. And he says, what's your name? And Richie tells him his name, first and last name. And the guy who runs the pony ride opens up a phone book, calls it, and the older brother answers the phone. Yeah. Of course, the older brother says, it's my brother. Yeah. Thanks. And he hangs up the phone, he runs off. Eventually, he shows up. There's thousands of people there. You can't find him. And he's looking around everywhere. And then he looks up in the sky and there's like a parachute drop as one of the rides at Coney Island. And he sees Richie up there about to come down. He realizes, oh, great, I found him. So the thing lands, but there's so many people there, he loses Richie, he never finds him. He sleeps overnight at the beach. And in the morning he wakes up, of course the beach is empty. He looks around the beach, there's Richie picking up empty bottles off of the beach sand. Finds him, I think Richie punches him in the stomach or something. <laughs> and he tells him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're just joking. And he takes him home, gets him home. And just as he changes his shirt, the door opens to the apartment, it's their mother, who's just gotten home. By this point, the television's on and Richie is watching the TV with his cap gun and he's clearly he's watching a Western and he's shooting at people on the screen. So, and the mother says, how are you guys? And the older brother says, well, okay, fine, fine. And Richie doesn't even answer. And 
mother goes into the kitchen. She says, okay, Aunt Sally's fine. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> um, Billy, I, I need to apologize. I've never seen this, but I looked it up last night, but you directed one movie called Josh and Sam, yeah. which is about... Based uh, on, was, my whole idea was I wanted to remake The Little Fugitive. Uh, and I pitched it to a writer and he wrote this script, which turned out to be Josh and Sam, based on what I told him about The Little Fugitive. And we sold it to Castle Rock with me as a director. Uh, okay. They loved it. They loved the script. They, they loved the idea. Uh, I even pitched it to an exec at Disney. Uh, and I told him all about The Little Fugitive and what I wanted to do. I wanted to place the whole thing at Epcot. I thought Epcot would be oh, a okay. great location for it. And uh, he loved the idea. And he pitched it to Michael Eisner, who was running Disney at the time, and he didn't like it. So didn't get picked up there. And then we pitched it. It got sent to Fox and Universal and Paramount and everybody passed on it. And then we took it to, okay. sent it to Castle Rock and went and had a meeting with Castle Rock. And Castle Rock said, uh, we want to make this movie. We, this is not a development deal. We want you to direct it and we want to make it. We love the script. So, Martin Brest was a producer was of this? producer of it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of want to keep into a linear fashion. I want to know where um, did you did you go to film? I did not go to film school, but no I film school. Never went to film school, but okay. because I always wanted to be in movies because I loved movies. At first, I wanted to be an actor because I thought that was the only job there was in <laughs> in movies was acting. And I took a couple of acting classes at UCLA and enjoyed it, but I didn't. I only liked the improv aspect of it i that makes sense i wasn't crazy about the uh script uh, uh it was too hard to me and i felt like i wasn't talented enough to do uh, uh script acting and there's a lot of light bulbs going off in my head okay. connections right now uh so but i really liked the improv quite a bit and uh and enjoyed it and then an aunt of mine who was an L.A. County adoption worker, a couple came in to adopt a baby, and he was a film editor. Okay. So, And I was very close with this aunt of mine, very close. And she knew I wanted to act and was really uh, very, very focused on movies and wanted to work in movies. She said, I, I met a film editor who came in to adopt a baby. Would you like to meet him? She said, because I'm sure he'd meet you. He's a very nice guy. She liked him. So she set up a meeting for me to meet him. And his name was Sidney, Sid Levin, L-E-V-I-N. Okay. He became Marty Ritz editor uh, okay. several years later. I mean, years later. At this point, he was still assisting. Okay. Uh, but a really sweet guy. So I went to meet him at a studio. I'd never been to a movie studio. And I went to his cutting room. And he showed me what he did and how to splice film together and all of that. I, I loved everything he was doing. And I remember saying to him, Golly, I feel like this is where the movie gets made. <laughs> he said, in a way, yes, but, you know, it doesn't get shot here and everything. He said, let me take you onto a soundstage. So he took me onto a soundstage right near his cutting room. And it happened to be a soundstage where they were shooting a movie called The Fortune Cookie. <laughs> oh, I have. I've been. That's been on TCM a bunch recently. That's a Billy Wilder hole. I haven't seen. I've been wanting to see it. Okay, as yeah, it's, it's Jack Lemmon and Matthew, and uh, so I take. He takes me on the soundstage, 
there's Billy Wilder, I see him, talking to Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau in an elevator set. And, uh, and I'm staring at this saying, shit. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is at a point, well, I don't know, if, did you ever see Something Like It Hot? Yeah, yeah. That was one of my favorite movies of all time when I saw it. I remember, I know where I saw it. It was my mother that took me to see it. Uh, and it was like, whew, man, this is a great movie. I loved it. Um, and Billy Wilder would still like, he's, I mean, what, Irma LaDuce is before this? Oh, he, yeah, still was kind he was of, huge. He was still top. Yeah, he was huge. And uh, so anyway, so Sid took me on this, that stage because he wasn't working on that movie, but they happened to be shooting there. He didn't even know what they were shooting on that stage when we walked on. He said, come on, let's just go on the stage and see what happens. So we did, and I saw that, and I said, oh, man, oh, man. So um, anyway, so then I met, so I met him, and I left, and I went home. And then three, four months later, same aunt calls me. She said, I ran into a very old friend of mine from college. He's currently working at Universal Studios, but he has nothing to do with movie business or television. He's an executive for MCA, who owned Universal. So I go to meet him. And we talk, and he says, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I met this film editor, really looked interesting to me, uh, and I really would love to work in movies. He said, well, I have nothing to do with movies. What his job was is he had, uh, like two years, three years earlier, had come up with an idea, which was the only way you could ever see the Indianapolis 500 race, race was you had to go to Indianapolis to the track to watch the race. Indy 500 was uh, yesterday too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, just the yeah. other day. So the Indy 500, the only way you could see it was live. Was never on television, uh, nothing like that. So he came up with an idea. Maybe we could do a closed circuit television broadcast of the Indy 500 and pipe it into movie theaters. Okay. So he, they put him to work at MCA and that's what he did year round is just get ready for, for the year for that, that race and just the race that was the only closed circuit thing they were doing that was it and uh he was very successful doing it so that's what he did for a living really sweet sweet man really wonderful guy so i go to meet him and he said so i don't know a thing about the movie business nothing but uh you're talking about editing let's go down to the employment office here in the basement of this building so this was 1967. So it was over 50 years ago. Okay. I've never forgotten the woman that ran that office, Lucille Acana. Now, the structure of MCA, the corporate structure of MCA was they were in a big office building in the front of Universal Studios, a 13, 12, 13 story office building, all black. It was known as the Black Tower. The tower you can see from the, the highway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that was it. And the way it was set up was. If you were in the basement, you were at the lowest level. A literal hierarchy. Okay. The hierarchy went up the building. The man that brought me down to meet her, his office was on the eighth floor. Three days later, I had a job. Okay. Because of that. How tall is the building? Uh, 12 stories, 13 stories. So a man per like three-fourths of the way to the top yeah. in the power structure yeah. told you to hire you. Yeah, yeah. So I got a job in what was called the print shop. It was right next to the mail room in the basement. It was in the print shop, but our, my section of the print shop was called the script department because what we did is 
we printed the scripts for everything they did and then delivered them all over the lot. So you got to go to every department, literally every department on the lot. And the way you got a job in those days at the studio, the way it worked is everything was a union job at the studio. And they okay. couldn't hire anyone unless they were in the union. But if they offered a job to someone and no one in the union wanted that job, they could hire someone who wasn't in the union yet. Oh, how things have changed. And, exactly. Well, I mean, they changed for a good reason. I'll tell you, I mean, how it all happened. But uh, at this point, that was the only way you could get a union, a job in the union was if everyone in the union was working. And at that time, there were probably 2,500 people in the editor's union. Okay, so there has to be 2,501 uh, jobs available. Right. That's right. And every year during the peak of the TV season, everyone was working. And that's how new people got in. So I... Then I went to the editorial department and told them I wanted to be in the editorial department. I want to be an editor. They said, okay, have you ever done anything like that before? Nope. All right, just come on over in your spare time at lunch and we'll show you how to use the hot splicer upstairs. And you work for free at lunchtime for us and do hot splicing. So I would do that for a while. And, uh, and eventually they had an opening in film shipping and no one in the union wanted that job. So I got hired, and that was an apprentice job. So I got hired as an apprentice editor in 1960, midway through 1968. Okay. And so I had been- Universal. I've been, yeah, Universal and film shipping. And uh, that was it. That was my beginnings. How did you meet Terry or how did you get into Terry's? Uh, I had been working on a movie part, not part time, but they were, it was a movie with Robert Redford called the candidate. Okay. Uh, so it was in 1971, something like that. 71, 72. And we were just talking about Michael Ritchie a few episodes. Ago. Oh, oh yeah. 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 So he was a director and I got hired. They had shot the movie in and around San Francisco we're cutting it in San Francisco, had two editors on it. And then they came down to LA because they were going to mix it in LA. And, and, but they weren't quite done cutting it yet. So they wanted to finish the cutting in LA and then they were mixing it in LA. So they moved the whole cutting room down to LA and uh, they needed an assistant to help get ready for, in post, to, to get ready for the mix. And they had just brought on a dialogue editor on and, um, so they needed someone to help be an assistant to the dialogue editor. And a friend of someone I know got offered the job. She couldn't do it. She gave them my name. They called me. I said, sure, I'd love it. It was a union job. So I went to work on that. And one of the editors on that movie was in the union. His name was Richard Harris. And the other editor was a non-union editor who they hired in San Francisco because you could do non you could be non-union in San Francisco. Okay. And his name was Bob Estrin, uh, okay. whose younger sister is Sandra Estrin, Sandra okay. Adair. Oh, okay. okay. But Sandy, okay. at that time, was living in Vegas. She hadn't graduated high school yet. 
So, uh, Sandra Adair is Richard Linklater's editor. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and she later became my assistant. Uh, okay. So, um, and we're good friends and I love it. Wow. Worlds combined. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Uh, and so, uh, I get hired on that. I'm on it for, oh, three months, something like that, four months until they finish the mix. And I got to know everybody, everybody real well. And, um, Bob Estrin, right at the end of the movie, said, I've just been hired to cut this low-budget non-union movie. Would you be willing to be my assistant on it? And I said yes, because I would never say no to a job. It didn't matter what the job was. Okay. And so uh, I know the feeling. Yeah, so I said, sure. And that movie was Badlands. And okay. so that's how I met Terry. And the, uh, I met him at his house just days before he was about to leave to go on location to shoot Badlands. And during the course of Badlands, we became best friends. I mean, uh, I mean, there's just so many parallels here. I was just like, when you were telling the universal story, I wanted you to know that my first real experience in any kind of not the very first, but the first big one where I was like really close and around the people that were making the movies was on your Avid, screwing up your Avid settings where I learned Avid. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So many perfect circles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you, I, I remember stories of like, you, so you still jumped around after Badlands. Because, like, and that's what I was about to tell you before, the, okay. the union the Editors Guild Union and all that, they had a rule. You had to be in the union for eight years, eight full years before you were allowed to edit anything. I've, I've heard of that rule before. When did it go away? It was the stupidest rule. Amazing. As I used to say to them, don't you understand? You want as many members as you can get. This discourages people from wanting to be in the union. This is a really stupid rule because if they found out that you were working on a non-union movie, you were thrown out of the union. If mm. you were in the union, so when I they punish the they punish the young editor, not the production. Yes, so I was in the union when I went on Badlands, but I still had. Uh, let's see, I got sixty-eight, so I still had until nineteen seventy-six. So I still had another four years or another two years when we finished Badlands, I had another two years before I was in eight years. So I couldn't cut anything. So I could only take assisting jobs after that. So, um, so anyway, so we finished Badlands and I needed work and I had met the guy who did our sound editing on Badlands was one of the great sound editors of Hollywood named Jimmy Nelson. Okay. And we had become really good friends and I helped him out. He had been the sound editor on the candidate. That's how I met him. Okay. So I told Terry, I said, I got a great guy to do the sound on Badlands. And he's, we were cutting in a building that he co-owned. And I said, and Jimmy's one of the owners of the building we're in. So Terry, I introduced him to Terry. Terry loved him. We hired him. So after we finished Badlands, Jimmy hired me as his assistant. I think I remember hearing stories about this building because it was like Highland and uh, yeah, it was pointed out to us. Okay. All right. And uh, so, uh, so I became Jimmy's assistant. Uh, and I worked on the exorcist. Uh, 
that's the story i wanted to hear about i heard that you had to watch you had to like test print like the uh, like like uh, numerous prints of the exorcist in a row every, and you were like every, i'm never watching it again every single answer print we made 50 answer prints from the original negative 50 five hours every version when the exorcist opened this is before there was some anything the way they open movies now you know like in you know 2000 theaters uh -huh. the exorcist opened in 50 theaters Okay. Uh, 50, 5 0. That's when it opened. What, 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 the way I heard it was like, you're never watching The Exorcist again after that? Or there I was never a did problem? watch The Exorcist again after that. I watched okay. 50. I had an okay, I had a quality view and say okay to 50 prints. So I probably watched 150 versions. I was going to ask how many of those were rejected. So that's like a 30 or 33% rate of quality. I had to pick 50 because two went to every theater, two prints. One was a backup. One was the show print. What were some other uh, taxi drivers on your IMDb, but what were some other uh, ones you assisted on before you jump, made the jump? Not a lot. Uh, well, okay. well um, Freebie and the Bean. Freebie and the Bean? Uh, Look, we we did a Richard Rush episode recently. Oh, oh. yeah, yeah. Because we 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 did it as a combo right after the week after he died. We did uh, Getting Straight uh -huh. and Tulane Blacktop Two for Monty uh -huh. Hellman. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, no, Rush was a sweet guy, really sweet guy. L let's go ahead and start getting to when did you meet first meet Martin Brest? Uh, <laughs> when I was working on Taxi Driver, Marty was in film school at the AFI, and he needed some. Uh, uh, mag stripe to shoot his uh, student film uh, to, to uh, transfer his sound dailies uh, on his student film called Hot Tomorrows at the AFI. And uh, because Marty Brest, I mean, Marty Scorsese used to teach film at NYU, Marty Brest called him. He didn't know him, but he just called him on a whim is there some way he could get some single stripe mag through Marty Scorsese? And Marty said, sure, come on over. I'll get some for you. So he came up, Marty came over to Warner Brothers, and I was the person that was told, give this single stripe mag to this young film student that's coming over to Warner Brothers to pick it up. So that's how I met Marty. So that was 1975. Was this just like a quick encounter? Did yeah, yeah, raise... literally. It was like 10 minutes. But I remember okay. his name and all that. And then Marty went, did his film, his student film. He did uh, uh, Going in Style at Warner Brothers. And then he started shooting War Games and got fired off of War Games. Um, real quickly, I, I really, I've never really heard the reason why he got fired off War Games, but I wanted to bring up because this, I, I keep bringing up old episodes and random conversations we've had that you know no one's listening to. But uh, we on an SNL episode, he came up because uh, his short film from '72 in NYU, Hot Dogs for Gauguin, yeah. aired on SNL in 1980 when Jamie Lee Curtis hosted. They did. Yeah. And well, what they did is they cut it down to three minutes, like a 15 minute thing. Yeah, yeah, and I've I, seen the whole thing. So, see, I, I never seen it. I was looking it up online, and all I could see is the SNL clip. Oh, it's Danny, not, it's, it's Danny and Rita are the stars of it. Danny, Danny yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 I mean, it, it cut down so I can understand the storyline, and it got a laugh. The big punchline at the end got a laugh. So, <laughs> oh, I didn't know they ran it on SNL. 
Sorry. How crazy is that? But it was the uh, the season right after Lauren Michaels first left. But oh, okay. um, yeah. So I mean, Ted, do you want to jump in? Do you have some questions for Billy? He was. I just keep him going. He was. Uh, he was <laughs> yeah. You. All right. So I cut Marty, him off. I cut him off. So Marty and I did, never saw each other again. And I mean, he he didn't even he you know he didn't know me. We didn't know each other except that one time. But I never forgot that day that he came over to pick up the mag stripe. And then I had cut. Um, a movie called Iceman okay. for Fred Skepsi. And I finished that. And Warner, uh, Paramount called me um, because I knew the head of post-production at um, Paramount because of Days of Heaven. Okay. Uh, and, um, and he called me, are you available for work? Because we had gotten along really well. I really liked him as a person. Oh, also I worked... Also, I did some editing on 48 Hours and Warriors. Uh, and so they knew me at Paramount. That was why I asked Ted if he wanted to ask questions, because I think he had some Walter Hill questions okay, for well, you. Okay, well, I'll tell you that. But so anyway, so then I got a call from him. We're doing three movies here at Paramount. I'd like you to cut one of them. I said, okay. So here's the first one. And the first one was a movie starring Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep. Uh, um, falling in love, falling in love, falling in love. So the director wouldn't even speak to me because I'd never cut enough. I never cut a movies that were financially successful. Yeah. I'm okay. cutting up big movies. That's what he said. So I, it was a New York director. And I used to use the go, go bar. Uh, I used, you know, gross bar, Ulu gross bar. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. He really? Would, Ulu gross bar. He wouldn't speak to me because I hadn't cut enough big movies. That was the quote. So Marty, so Paul Hager, who's the head of post, said, okay, here's the other one. Here's another one I want you to go interview for. It's called Beverly Hills Cop. So I go and I meet Marty at that, have an interview with him and the producer, Jerry Bruckheimer, and I leave and I go home and half an hour later, I got a phone call saying, so they want you to cut the movie. So that's how I met Marty. Is this, uh, so there's three editors on Beverly Hills Cop. Were no, you supposed to be? No, there's two editors. Okay. Me, We're, me and okay. Arthur Coburn. Okay. Because we had a horrible schedule, so I had to bring on somebody to be that's the That's why I was going to ask. Yeah, that's all it was. Yeah. Okay. I mean, um, you, but you were only briefly on, on 48 Hours? You weren't there that 48 long? Hours, no, I was brought in because they were swamped with uh, with footage and, and, uh, and uh, the schedule was not good. And, and I, years ago... In 1970, before I worked on uh, Badlands or before anything, I did cut another movie, a $100,000 non-union feature called Messiah of Evil. <laughs> that That's that's the very to uh, top of, or chronologically, the first one on your IMDb. That's it. Yeah. That's the first thing I ever cut. That was made by two very, very close friends of mine. $100,000 horror movie, uh, zombie horror movie. That I'm in it also. <laughs> as a zombie wasn't walter hill in i was that? gonna say walter yeah. the first human you see in messiah of evil right he, there's a special a special edition disc wow. of that and uh, that's right i'm interviewed on it right i, I have i guess well shows you i haven't watched my disc yet yeah. wow uh, they, i was gonna say you you need to be on some of these uh features uh <laughs> well, i was on that one they did yeah. the interview for that one we, we, yeah i think they actually just did a remastering of it on blu-ray uh, right? yeah i think i'm pretty sure 
Well, I, the, the 48 Hours Beverly Hills Cop Connection, the, the, going, I watched a few Martin Brest movies leading up to this, just, not just Midnight Run, but I was thinking, and I'd watched 48 Hours uh, recently, I hadn't seen it in forever, just a few weeks ago, I just, on a whim. Yeah. It's so, going through your list in the 80s, specifically in the 80s, it's funny how you're at the pulse of like, the specific 80s buddy comedies and Eddie Murphy movies too. Like you're at Eddie Murphy's two big first movies yeah. and it's a pretty big debut like it's he jumped on screen fully formed you bet you bet he didn't even know how to drive when we did 48 <laughs> hours i'm not exaggerating he'd never driven a car yeah i mean is is uh, was there, is it just, was it just serendipity of, um, I mean, mainly the buddy movies, just because the style, like when you mentioned the improv a second ago, that's why I was, light bulbs were going off just because all these movies, they're, the, 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 the star roles, personalities are coming across, but these, like every single one of these movies, when I'm watching them, I have to wonder how much was improv and how much was scripted. But with Eddie, uh, uh, with Eddie, a lot of it was scripted because Walter is, you know, they were very nervous about Eddie. He'd never acted before. He'd only done stand-up. Uh, they had to get him a dialogue coach because he wasn't used to memorizing that much dialogue and stuff like that. But I mean, he was phenomenal in the movie and actually both of them were fantastic, absolutely great. Um, but then when Marty did uh, Cop, Eddie did a lot of improv. He was phenomenal because that was his... Did you ever see... Uh, well, he does it in Coming to America, but did you ever see when he, uh, uh, the um, Nutty Professor, his version of Nutty <laughs> Professor? You remember? Yeah. Remember the it's been a while, but yeah. Remember the dinner scene? We played mm -hmm. every, he's everyone in the scene is Eddie. Mm -hmm. um, that's when, well, Marty discovered that Eddie's incredible talent. And then I discovered it also when we were looping him. Eddie, if Eddie met you, Eddie could do a great imitation of you. Did he have an impersonation of you? No, he never did me, but he, <laughs> he did amazing stuff. When he came into Loop, he had just been watching at home the original Planet of the Apes movie. The very original one he was watching on TV. So okay. he came into the looping stage, and we were sitting down waiting for them to set up. He started to do imitations of every character in that movie. Everyone. And he's amazing. It's an incredible talent he has. That's why the, you know, the barbershop scene in Coming to America, where he plays three characters in that yeah. scene. He's amazing. That that's an incredible talent of his. Well, so when he was came time to do a scene in Cop, I mean Marty would have to watch. He was sitting under the camera. Marty was, and Eddie would start to do a scene. Marty had to have a towel in his mouth to stop from laughing. Because Eddie, Eddie was amazing at what he was doing. Where did um, I thought this reputation was born in the '90s, but I guess Martin Brest has a reputation of doing a lot of takes. Was that for based? Did this come out of he wanted more improv stuff, yeah. or yeah. does this develop? Yeah, it just developed. But I mean, he he loves he loves performance, and he loves it when actors get warmed up and really get a chance to do stuff. And he's totally open to them changing script and stuff like that so yeah so what was the history with midnight run how did you come onto that well because marty and i became best friends when we were doing cop 
So okay. he wanted me to do everything he did. And uh, and so Midnight Run was originally set up at, War, at Paramount. And Marty was interviewing actors and stuff. And he finally came up with that he wanted De Niro and um, Charles Grodin. It came down to be, I mean, he always knew he, we didn't always, he, he read a ton of actors, Richard Dreyfuss uh, for the De Niro character, a lot of different people, but then he ended on De Niro and loved De Niro. And then the part of the, the lawyer account, the, what became the Groban part was uh, between, at the very end, it was between Robin Williams and Groban. Okay, they they have some mentions on here of on um, the IMDb of like Cher was mentioned at one point and Bruce Willis. Is so, uh, so so Marty decides he wants De Niro and Groden. So he goes to the studio, the head of uh, at Paramount, says, "Okay, so I've uh, decided I want De Niro and Charles Groden as the two leads." And they said, "Really." We were thinking more of the lines of Bruce Willis and Cher. Cher as the accountant and Willis as the uh, uh, the De Niro character. And uh, this would have been before uh, Die Hard. But well, after Die Hard opens up the same weekend as Midnight Run, so it's going to get interesting. Wow. Okay. You know, yeah. Here, yeah. Sure. And so what Marty's reaction to that was. If I got another place to buy this and turn around, would that be okay with you? And they said, yeah. 24 hours later, he had a deal at Universal with De Niro and Groden. Billy, Billy, they should have you uh, do the features. They had a, uh, the Midnight Run has everybody on there, but you should be on there talking. <laughs> uh, because you, uh, they said something about Cher was coming off a of Moonstruck, and Paramount was just so, so stuck on her. That was one reason they didn't. They were uh, they were really uh, stuck at that Marty wanted to take it around, take it over to another studio. Yeah. So uh, yeah. No, I mean, it was, but that all happened really fast. So, oh, before that, I was going to cut Rain Man because Marty was the original director of Rain Man. Oh. But he quit because of Dustin. Because <laughs> Dustin. Speaking was, of Ula Gross Bard. Um, yeah. No, no, it was Barry Levinson. No, no, but the Dustin Hoffman uh, hired on straight time. Oh, oh, right. for, yeah, that, yeah. That's what, sorry. I yeah. hit my head went yeah. three steps and that's I didn't explain it. Good, yeah. good for a podcast. That's so it's hard for Marty. And so Marty quit. Uh, and then Spielberg was brought on. I've heard about Spielberg, Spielberg on Rain Man. Quit. Sidney Pollack came on for two weeks and said to himself, what am I doing? I went through this already on Tootsie. I'm not going to do it again. And so he quit. So uh, Mike Ovitz, who was running, still running CAA at the time, went to Dustin and said, I'm not going to let you keep doing this. Uh, I'm not going to put the studio in this horrible position. You have to, we're going to bring on Barry Levinson. You can't fuck with him. And we got to do this movie. And that's how that all got put together. I do. I, I, we, we skipped over this. I want to hear the story about why he got fired off War Games. Were you on War Games when it happened? No, no, no I was not on War Games. He got fired off of War Games, I think, because he alienated David Beetleman and Freddie Fields, who were the producers. That so it's it. nothing. It's no. nothing elaborate. No, no, no. It's two weeks into shooting, and they fired him, and he had no power at all. None. And 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 uh, what's his name, um, uh, who had just directed uh, Blue Thunder? Bad- John Bat. John Bat. 
he had just directed this movie Blue Thunder, which was a big hit at the time for MGM. So they brought him up to do it. Okay. So there's okay, there's not really a big story there. Um, so one of the things that strikes me about Midnight Run is that it's a road movie that feels like it has a budget. Like it feels like this isn't something you guys stole on the road. No, no, like, no. it was written. It okay. was written. George Gallo yeah. and Marty. And it was written, really well written. It was a great script. That's how we got the deal. They loved it. How long was the production schedule, the shoot? Uh, I don't remember. How long was the post schedule? How long were you uh, on that we, 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 met all their sched- we met all their dates, so we didn't go over on anything. Even when even even by going, you had to go to New Zealand to shoot that river scene. That's right, because that was like you know four days, something like that max. Everything else was shot, and that happened because weather-wise, we couldn't find a river in the U.S. that we could shoot in that was safe for the guys to go in. Because it was time. It was it's, it's, no, it's, I, I I have seen that. But, it was uh, the time of year. You were shooting. You were cutting on set then. No, uh, I was back in the cutting room because they went. The set was, uh, we were at the studio at Universal because uh, they shot at, the, at shot at Universal, they shot in New York City, they shot in Chicago, they shot in uh, outside of Phoenix, in Arizona, um, and Vegas. They were shooting all over the place. What were your general impressions as footage was coming in? Loved it. Loved it. We were loving it. It was great. It was always just, the scenes were so good. And the two of them were Marty would tell you, Marty would tell you that the relationship between De Niro and Groban was the same as it was that you see in the movie. <laughs> uh, so did, did you guys, when you're seeing this come again and you're, and you're directing this and I mean, that Marty's directing this and all, did it seem like it was a new, a new De Niro, a new era, a new shift in, in De Niro? Or, oh yeah, De Niro never yeah. done a comedy in his life. He was so scared. Remember the scene when he uh, uh, Yafet Kato meets him and they put him in the cop car to talk to him? Ted has a story for you about this too, by the way. Okay. Go ahead. Well, they put the hero in the car and they're talking to him and uh, he talks to them and then they kick him out of the car and they leave. And he whips around De Niro because he had stolen, uh, what was it, Yafet's ID? His ID. The FBI ID. And he whips around and he shows it like that to the camera. That was a total improv by De Niro. And when it was done, when it was done, when he did that, and Marty said, okay, cut. De Niro said, is that okay that I did that? He had no idea. He was always nervous about everything he did because um, he'd never been in a comedy ever. And, uh, and his, just his natural instincts were so good. He just, and they got along so well. The, the one you know, Marty and Yafet didn't go on. Oh, like, I did see a quote about that. The mag- to me, the magic one of the one of the aspects that makes this movie so magical is those scenes with uh, Bobby showing the card at the camera. It just like it seems like the film is just filled with so many nice little quirky scenes. Yeah, it's 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 like a a big gumbo that and you uh, quotable scenes and scenes that you remember. Uh, I, you know, I, I, the action scenes I hardly forget about. It's, it's the, all the little scenes that I love. Oh, the action scenes were, we didn't even care about them. I mean, <laughs> that was I had, a movie, you know. Right. 
before uh, before we started this, I had on uh, the scene where um, he, uh, he's on the telephone booth and he's he's calling uh, Joey Pantoliano. Yeah, and he's saying and he's saying like uh, I, it, I will throw him. Or he's talking to Charles Grodin or motion Charles Grodin. He's like I will throw him in the fucking river, shoot him and throw yeah. him in the fucking river. Yeah. And the improv where he does the, the side where he does a little nod yeah, to yeah, Grodin. Yeah, he's like, like no worry, I won't do that. I won't do that. Yeah. Oh my god, I lost it. So that scene. The, the Joey Pantoliano scene side of it, of his of that phone call. Joey is on the phone, and we shot that down at a, a, a building in downtown LA at, late at night. And Joey's on the phone, but he wanted somebody to talk to because it was just his side of the call. So De Niro said, oh, no, you can talk to me. I'll be at dinner. So he De Niro calls him from the restaurant in, in downtown LA. And Joey is uh, screaming, remember, over the phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And De Niro is just sitting there in a restaurant phone booth listening to Joey. <laughs> and uh, and that's how they shot that side of the call. The reason I brought up the uh, buddy movie thing was, in 48 Hours in particular, was uh, I've, I've read other people talk about this, this idea that part of this certain vibe of 80s buddy movies is you're mixing acting styles you're putting eddie murphy with nick nolte you're putting robert de niro with charles groden yeah is i mean is this is this something that you're cutting that you're keeping in mind or is this something just dailies are coming in and you're just like this is working dailies okay i did want to ask you about uh danny elfman this is one of danny elf like but you worked Mm -hmm. on danny elfman's for well that's an interesting well before you uh, and i mean the funny thing is when i first saw this film in the theater and the, the 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 music starts. I'm like, oh, it's Ry Cooter, because uh, it's this. And I'm thinking, I, and it almost looks like a Walter Hill film at the very beginning, uh, and the action scene, and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like because you're you're dropped in on a, a, a right. Nero doing. Nero is looking for the guy. Yeah. We're looking for the guy, and there's this. And I'm like, oh, okay, and then it turns out to be Danny Elfman. I'm like, oh, it's Danny Elfman doing Ry Cooter. I, I don't know. It was very interesting. But go ahead. What was your But you did one? Danny Elfman's first movie, I, or his I, first studio I feature. Helped. It was part of my doing to hire Danny. That's what uh, I was going to ask. Okay. But Danny had done Marty's student film at the AFI, Hot Tomorrows. Really? Yeah. Okay. That was the first thing Danny ever did as a for wow. movie. Was okay, so Marty's, they were uh, So Marty knew him. And uh, uh, and we weren't going to hire Marty. I mean, uh, Danny for Midnight Run. We were going to hire. We wanted Tommy Newman. Okay. He was already doing another movie at Universal at the time called. Uh, it was a camper camping movie, a comedy with John Candy. Um, uh, oh God, I can't remember the name of it now. Anyway, but Tommy was doing that, so we couldn't get Great Outdoors. Yeah, summer vacation. Yeah, yeah. no, no, Great Outdoors. Okay. Yeah. Outdoors. So uh, so I say to Marty, what about Danny? Should we get Danny? Yeah, we could try. Let's send him a scene. So we sent him the scene when De Niro goes to his wife's ex-wife's house and meets his daughter there. Oh, man. Oh. That music you hear in that scene? That's, we sent the scene to Danny. Danny wrote that piece of music on piano and sent it back to us. And we put it against the scene. What you see in the movie is that cue, that recording of that cue. Wow. 
Well, I gotta tell you, that's that's interesting. You bring that scene up because to me, I think the most important part about this film is that scene. It's like this whole hurricane of action, fun, comedy, uh, road picture, everything, and then all of a sudden you get this little quiet eye of the hurricane scene in the middle of the movie where the daughter, the near confronts daughter. I, I even start tearing up now thinking about it. Yeah, it's such a it's such a magical moment. In this movie, that I think it, it, it elevates it, it transcends. It gets uh, better every time I see yeah. it. Every time I see that, it's so better and better. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, th- th- is that just like that was pitch perfect on set? Like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of editorial fussing on oh, that. Yeah. Like, where the cue comes in was something that I was noticing, but like, you, it, it stays off of it for so long. It's in oh, silence. Yeah. And like, and De Niro then just will like look at her and you waiting for him to say something, but he never does. But his the expressions on his face are saying everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's. I think a lot of people have pointed out that scene. Like, I, I saw someone compare that scene as like a male weepy scene, comparing <laughs> it to like a Shawshank Redemption. Like, because Midnight Run has had this reputation of being shown. Like, it's the one of those cable rewatchable shows or movies. Like, you know, it was a huge. It was a flop financially. Oh really? Yeah. yeah well, Die Hard opened that same weekend. I, I know that. A flop financially. What happened was it was the number one movie box office in L.A. and New York. And in Dallas, Texas, there were eight people in the theater. Hmm. Is this just because of, like, was this... Not to get into, like, studio expectations and, like, first week box office crap, but, like, was... is Well, yeah. it is funny. My friend, my best... One of my good friends last night, I was telling him I was getting ready to do this podcast, and I... And I and he goes, well, you boy, you really love Midnight Run. I don't remember... I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I remember when it came out, you were kind of, like, uh, a little bit leery because I was one of those Robert De Niro fans thinking, what's Robert De Niro doing a, a big glossy body picture? So I guess I was one of those, you know, that I, I couldn't uh, believe it. But once I saw it and then I've, and then this, every, every time I watch it, I just love it more and more and more. Well, it became uh, like a cult favorite. So, you know, it's just over the years, but at the time we were a flop. Was there anything crazy that went on uh, during post process? Like anything big changes? Test. What about the ending of the story? Where they, are they uh, uh, the writer on the features on the disc, uh, George Gallo. George Gallo says that uh, they he he was scared to bring this up, but he goes, "We can't kill Marvin off." I guess Marvin was John Ashton's part was supposed to die originally. Yeah, and they, maybe, but then I think I'm sure they decided while shooting because yeah. John, you know, Marty knew John really well from Cops, so. Uh, uh, because his character, he's kind of lovable in his own weird way. Oh yeah, and they and they thought they, well, we're, we're going to lose the audience if we kill him off at the end. So they changed it, and uh, I don't know if that changed the the whole. Uh, it, uh, did it affect you as an editor? Not I guess at all. it didn't. No, no, no. I mean, were you um, in the improvs? What was the process of choosing this stuff? Because back to the, uh, the 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 meeting the daughter scene, the Denise scene. One other little detail I was watching today is when he goes out to the car. You know, he's been mean. De Niro's been mean to Grodin up until this point. And he, he opens the door for him, you mean? He opens the the car door for him and grabs his coat and puts the tail of his coat <laughs> in. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, are you going through a lot of different improvs and choosing? Is, is, um, is what was you and Marty, Marty Breast's uh, select process like? Well, yeah. All, you know, we would look at it all right then and make decisions and what should we try? And yeah. Would like to cut whether I, I I thought it was brilliant that you left the cut in where the uh, Yafet throw the sunglasses at, at Nero and he doesn't catch him. He yeah, lets him drop. That's a good one. And I'm thinking 
typically, oh, we, they, they have the actor catch it, you know, and you, you guys left it in this, him dropping him to the pavement and had to pick him up in the beginning. I thought that was... Well, the, and, there, and it's two shots. Like, there's a cut in the middle of it where he's, like, um, yeah. catching the shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, did you did you know George Gallo, the writer? Did oh, you really? have any... yeah, George used to come to the cutting room, and even before they finished shooting, he would come by and visit. Yeah, we were Ted and I were talking about this. So supposedly the story was that um, he, he's he's known most known for I got um, um, Bad Boys, and uh, his only credit before this is Wise Guys, the Brian De Palma movie, which. We, you and I, being De Palma fans, have never talked about uh-huh. probably for better reason. But um, Bad Boys was made in the '90s, and he said Bad Boys. He was trying to sell at this point, and he ran into. He was in a meeting, and he ran into Martin Brest, and and he told him about Midnight Run. Maybe I don't even. I'm not sure. I mean, George, I know had written it originally, on his, you know, on his own, and then uh, and they made uh, uh, a bunch of changes. Do you remember when uh, De Niro's character goes to the police station to read up about Groden's character? There's a guy there, like a yeah. blondish cop behind the counter. That, and De Niro's friendly with him. Yeah, and they shows De Niro the paperwork on him. That guy, that he's a real cop. And Midnight Run, it was his expression. Ah, okay. That came from him. Marty met him through George. George had met that cop who told him what a midnight run was. (laughs) Yeah, apparently he wrote this when he was like 20 years old. uh, Yeah. yeah. But then other things got got done before this. But they did huge rewrites. Marty was very, very active in the rewrite. So I somewhere in my head, I remember Martin Russ as being uh, writing almost all of his movies, but it seems like he's really only written a few. And but I mean, imagine he's rewriting this with these people or yes. at least credited. No, least absolutely. Credited. He doesn't take a writing credit, but he does tons of rewriting. That yeah. totally that totally makes sense. Yeah. I went I went to the uh, movies last night and uh, the poster up was this movie Comeback Kid that George Gallo directed, apparently. It's yes. Got, uh, and it's got De Niro in it. Yes. Right. I've seen the little clips from maybe did I watch the whole thing? I can't remember now. But uh, uh, I definitely have seen clips from it that George gave me. Uh, also, it's amazing the cast the across the board. It's just so wonderful. I mean, even you've got Philip Baker Hall. He doesn't do much, but also he's. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> uh, Dennis Farina, I guess he's shooting Crime Story at the time. Well, so no, he, Vegas... I, think he, I thought he was done with Crime Story at the time. Well, but... Was he done? But he wasn't. They, they shot the scene. His scenes are in Vegas, so you yeah. kind of had that that connection there. Right, but he was living here though. But uh, uh, but yeah, we shot a, a ton at the Flamingo Hotel in Vegas. Do you have any like? Ostensibly, we're doing this for Charles Grodin, who passed just yeah. recently. Um, I um, well, you know, actually, actually, you know, Pat Cotto passed away recently. Yeah, uh, uh, Kehoe, the, the assistant to Joey. Yes, yeah. He just he just passed away. That's right. Recently. That's I didn't right. Know that part. And uh, and then um, and Dennis Farina. It's, it has been that Dennis long since Farina, passed away. I see. I thought he had died a long time ago. Well, so. it seems recent. I mean, when you get older, it's like it all. They all blends together. They were all fun. They were all a pleasure. Um, Such a well cast movie. Oh yeah, it was wonderful. It was terrific. But Grodin just there's just. Um, when we finished the movie, when we finished shooting, and I had to show Marty uh, our first cut of the movie. So that was like, I don't know, a week after we finished shooting or 10 days, something like that. And um, we said, Marty said, you know what, I want to have De Niro 
I want to show it to De Niro because he's going on to shoot a movie immediately. I think it was called Jack Knight. Uh, okay. Then he was taking no time off. So we wanted De Niro to see the movie. So he had an idea of what it was like and what he'd shot and all that. So we showed it to De Niro 10 days after we finished shooting. And he was very happy with it, all that. He was, you know, he thought it was all fine. And then Marty said, you know what? We have to make a tape of it and send it to Groden because I don't feel like it's fair showing it to Bobby and not showing it to Groden. Okay. So we show it to Bobby. Then we make this tape and send it to New York to Groden. Five days later, in the mail, at the cutting room comes this huge box. And it's an enormous box of Godiva chocolates. Oh, okay. Saying, you have just made my career. I love you. Thank you so much. He just loved it. Loved it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it, it, we, um, last few weeks, we've been talking about random. We both watched Heartbreak Kid recently. Uh -huh. Um uh, I, I forgot. We, we did some uh, episode on Mike Nichols, and apparently he was up for the graduate part. Oh, uh, yeah. I was going... no, he more than up. He passed on the graduate, is what I was told. Okay. That De Niro, I mean, that Groden passed on the graduate. Wow. <laughs> I, but I was going through his IMDb. Like, you know, his first credit is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. No. Like, it's, it's uncredited. <laughs> a little tiny, a little tiny tidbit. It's almost. Yeah, I imagine. But like, the Kirk Douglas version? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's like a teenager. He's like the a, a, a bugle player, a trumpet <laughs> player uh, in one little scene. Well, I'm going at this as I, I, his career, this report. So Rosemary's baby is probably one of his first, like it's a tiny role. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, are you guys familiar with his TV work from the late sixties or? Well, he's popping up in things left and right. Dude, like everybody, almost all those actors that era where you look around John Void. Uh, right. Warren, Warren Beatty was on dope. Yeah. 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 Redford, Redford's doing Twilight Zone and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. I remember the Redford Twilight Zones. I saw those. Okay. And then you got him as his part in Catch-22. We mentioned Heartbreak Kid. Yeah. yeah. Um, Evan Can't Wait's memorable to him. Right. Uh, people well, might... when, I, when I posted the uh, my little tribute to him on my Facebook page, uh, most people re responded they love him from the Beethoven movies. Uh -huh. yeah. I was going to get to that. Uh, Great Muppet Caper is a big one for our generation. That's how we got the Beethoven movies. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. That's. How would you get Beethoven? Uh, well, because I'm, I'm, the studio I'm, saw, oh, this guy, he's really good in Midnight Run, and they have the Beethoven movie. So, I, I still feel like the math's a little incomplete. He's funny. He can be in another <laughs> movie. Sometimes these studio executives there, which whatever. Um, Ishtar, which uh, yes. I am a big fan of, and um, more recently he's got a part in um, No Bomb Box while while we're young. And I found it funny that one of my, if we're not counting 20,000 Leagues on the Sea, one of his first parts is a doctor in Rosemary's Baby. And one of the first, last memorable parts I remember was he was a doctor on Louis C.K. shows, Louis. And like, he was just this, cur he was just this curmudgeonly doctor. Well, he's also Louis. a veterinarian in uh, 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 the Albert Brooks debut film. Uh, oh, yeah. real life? Real yeah, life. I forgot to mention real life. And I did forget to mention a, real life. And he's, that's, he's, he's just such a showcase from there, too. Yeah. You know what he would have been great in? It's too bad. Uh, did you ever have you ever watched the Kaminsky Method? Oh, yeah. I haven't watched. I, I mean, it's on my it's on my Netflix. Fantastic. Netflix, but, and he would have been good in that. He would have been great in it, not as a lead, but in 
in a smaller part. Uh, but do you know? Do you, I mean? Did you have you kept in tabs with him over the years? Do you know? Like, because with Groden? Groden? No, no. Because he because it, it drops off his IMDb drops off around 2016. Well, so I mean, he did like two movies. I think and, like, he retired from the TV series, and I think okay. he just decided to hang out at home with his family. I mean, as an editor, uh, well, you uh, here, Shane, you just said that you keep in touch with. Him. So, as an uh, as an editor of these films. Do you actually develop relationships with the actors, depends, even though you really don't? Not, you really don't really interact with them. Not much, not much. But yeah. it depends on the movie, you know. I mean, I, you know, I met like on Thin Red Line, I met everybody, you know, and I know Marty Sheen, so I have known Marty since Badlands, that makes and sense. I've worked with Marty on and off, and and I know Emilio, and um, so I got to know him. Uh, I have to think about who else. We skipped over Days of Heaven. You do a great commentary on Days of Heaven too. Oh, I did that for Blue uh, for uh, Criterion. Criterion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you know what? I, I look at this. I mean, now correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, uh, I did. You know, it, and it, and and as I, my best friend told me last night, I thought it was some kind of giant glossy buddy film that uh, De Niro was uh, selling out. He wasn't. You know, he, he wasn't doing his heavy duty stuff that I always loved, but I ended up loving the film. But it seems like it's like. It's kind of a mashup of a little bit of Walter Hill, a little bit of Michael Mann, a little bit, and of course Michael. I don't know. Started his career. I don't. Uh, by the Vegas. Oh uh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, there was seemed to be um, the action films in there. That's you had the uh, helicopter scene. Mm-hmm. You got your you know. You, oh, it's not, it's not, yeah. Did was Marty influenced by anything? Well, no, not not so much influence. It just felt like it was a nice combination of all these different elements that made i think that made the film even that better marty always felt that that 48 hours was the pilot for all of the for lethal weapon for midnight run for that was that was really the pilot even even more so than butch cassidy and sundance kid yeah 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 interesting because butch and sundance were were good guys okay okay and uh 48 hours when you meet them, it's neither one's a good guy. <laughs> Can I? So I don't know how much you want to go into this, but uh, I don't know if we've even talked about it. But Billy, you know, I'm a fan of Gili, or at least I kind of. There's parts of Gili I like. Uh huh. What does Marty? What does Marty? Bres- I like the original version better. That's a story I kind of wanted to hear you tell, but there was a, a better original they made, version that they got. Made us, they made us reshoot the entire last act of the movie. Okay. Um, did, did, which version had, because when I always try to sell people on it, that they should rewatch it. Because the, the state, I worked at the movie theater when that movie came out, and I always point out, one, that's not the worst movie that came out that week, much less <laughs> whatever the hell was said. Um, and then I'll point them to YouTube and say, have you seen the scene with Pacino and the fish tank? Yeah, is was that a reshot or was no, that no, no, that was original. That scene, oh, that scene's so cool. That's what that's what really soured the audience on the movie, uh, because they were having a really good time watching the movie up until that time, and then that the movie takes a turn when that sure. happens becomes quite. You don't expect that to happen, and it's serious and and all of that, and then the movie takes a serious turn. The original movie. And what happens in the original movie is uh, 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 Jennifer 
decides I can't stick around with you. Not after that. And I'm leaving. And, uh, and you should turn him into the police and, uh, and to save him. And, and, uh, and I'm getting out. And she leaves with a half an hour left to go in the movie. That's the last time you see her. And, uh, and then he decides, okay, I'm going to turn him into the police, meaning Chris Walken. And he takes him to see Chris Walken and finds out that Chris Walken is a cop, but he's also a turncoat cop. And he's going to hurt the kid. Okay. So he shoots Chris Walken, Ben Affleck does. And he gets shot at the same time in the stomach. But he's still alive. And then he, but he kills Chris Walken. So then he takes the kid to the beach where they had seen them shooting, you know, all those people there at the beach shooting. And he pulls up at the beach and he's very badly wounded, uh, Affleck is. And he tells the kid, go go on out on the beach. You can talk to those people out there. And the kid goes out on the beach and Ben sits down on the sand and he's watching everything that goes on. Did you, so did you watch, you watched the whole movie, Gigli? It's been a while. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm overdue to watch did it. it have, but... Did it have the opening scene still in it where he has a dream, like a, day, like a fantasy dream? No, probably not. We had to take it out. He has a fantasy dream. Well, something on the beach yeah, makes sense. Pristine but I don't... Beach, totally most beautiful, pristine beach imaginable. And it's like a, it's like a, a dream that he has. And so now we're at the beach and he sends the kid to go stand on the set with all those people. And it turns out they're shooting a commercial there. And Ben is sitting on the sand watching this all go down. And he's, he's bleeding. And they, they start to shoot this commercial and start playing this music. And everybody on the, in the scene starts to dance. And the kid doesn't know what to do. And finds it entertaining and starts to smile. And he starts to dance with all the kids, all these young people like his age dancing on the beach. And Ben is watching it. And all of a sudden the wind starts to blow. And the wind starts to blow harder and harder and blowing sand, lots of sand. And eventually it's a big special visual effects scene, big time visual effects scene. The sand blows and blows until it blows everyone away and covers the beach with this beautiful sand and Ben dies there hmm. and he died. See the dancing sounds familiar, but obviously this, the yeah. special no, they're still shot. dancing, but now the way it is in the movie, Ben drives off with Jennifer who still, who comes okay. to pick him up okay. and they drive away together because they were going to get married in real life. And the studio wanted that them to live at the end, so that because Ben and Jen are on the cover of every, uh, you know, pop magazine and newspaper there was at the time. And every short-term studio executive idea has played out into posterity. There you go. That's why. There you go. Uh, I I bring the movie up mostly because I want to know: Is Martin Brest for like retired? Is he ever going to make a movie again? No one will take his phone calls. He has a great script that he's written. 
that I wish he'd make. That would be extremely timely today. And nobody will even read it or take his phone. Like, G- G- it's Geely? Really? That's it? Yeah. Geely and Micho Black. Those are the last two. It's that, I mean, that's really the, that's a, such a sad situation. It's like, I guess, with uh, Elaine May with Ishtar. They just don't take, well, you do a film like that, and you're just like persona non grata, huh? For, I mean, for I mean forever sometimes. It's horrible. It's, it's stupid. It's so fucking it's, ridiculous. Yeah, it's stupid. Yeah. It's awful. Uh, hey, uh, I've always been fascinated by the, the, uh, the position of editor. Do you, because I'm thinking, how, is the director always... Uh, involved all the time or is it not involved because I'm thinking how can you be a director and not want to see how it's put together yeah they're always involved they're always involved are they they usually with you in the booth or the room or oh yeah are they yeah yeah. okay almost every almost every director huh yeah pretty much well Billy I was just going to give you credit because I was doing the list on the directors you've worked with and I, I mean you did four movies with Terry you said Nine of Cups five uh, three with Walter Hill, three with Tony Scott, two with Warren Beatty. Like people keep wanting to come back to you. Well, we got to be friends. I'm friends with all of them. So is that a good? Is that a? It's a, Is that? We just got to be friends. It was a good. Always, not always a good match. Fred Skepsi was a horrible match, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I didn't like him. Also, I got intense situation. Came Black a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, I sure. worked on the Last Predator movie. So, yeah, he really is uh, interesting. I liked the last Predator movie. Oh, you did the recent. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Good. There was some. St- there was some to dos about the last uh, act reshot on it or something. Yeah, well, we did a reshoot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. His one of his closest friends that he uh, shared a, a he roomed with uh, is from Indiana, a small town called Jasper, Indiana. So on the opening weekend of Lethal Weapon Two, Shane's in Jasper, Indiana. And I got to meet him and talk to him. It was a, it was a blast because oh, uh, we're both. Uh, Shane's got a lot of fanboy in him, like I do. Uh, yeah, you know, he's, a good guy. he's a good guy. And, and he said, I guess the, you know he was kind of upset because you know uh, Mel Gibson was supposed to die at the end of Lethal Weapon Two, and they uh-huh. switched it. And of course, again, once again, they make him live at the end. So yeah. yeah. Well, um, I do want to, one of the quotes I came across from Midnight Run was uh, Alan Sepinwall, the writer for Rolling Stone, called Midnight Run the Casablanca of buddy movies. <laughs> what does that mean? Even? What, what is it? Uh, I never made a sequel. <laughs> I took it as it's a complimentary that it's a little more soulful than your average uh, uh-huh. uh, buddy movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe the well, ending was changed at the last moment uh-huh. on set. Speaking uh, of us, uh, speaking of sequels, uh, how about, uh, have you had you have any contact with those uh, TV movies they spun off? No, no, uh, no, no, no. Did you put, ever even see them? No, uh, no. Yeah, God. they put those out in a box set. I think with the original film. Uh, really, they did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, you said that you felt Kodo didn't get along with Martin. Uh, no, they didn't get along great. Yeah. It, it was just just uh, conflicts in the set, the, the approach, the character. I don't even know why uh, it happened exactly. And then Danny Elfman. Uh, so Danny, that's another. I love the scene. Uh, your little. Um, uh, I, I don't know if it was in the script or your choice or Martin's, but I love every time you would cut to Yafet Cotto, the FBI agents. There would be always this great music cue, and they're always running. You know, they're always coming up the steps or doing this. It was like you know, and they're just ineffectual FBI squad. <laughs> 
and and Danny's got this little, you know, uh, these great musical cues for him. Uh-huh. Uh, so I thought that was a really nice touch that you guys did there. No, Danny, Danny did a great job, boy. I made that right. And very, I think a very atypical. Song. I don't think he's ever done anything like that again. Yeah. Like I, I'm blanking too. I know because his versatility has come out more in the years, but around that time, like yeah, nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know better than yeah. It was different. Um, Billy Weber, thank you yeah. so much for doing this. Well, it was thank a you, pleasure. Billy. It was really fun, tremendous fun. Yeah. Big fan, Billy. I'm very honored to uh, get a chance to talk talk to you and, and share this with you. Yeah.